in part one of this episode commemorating 100 years since the passage of the 19th Amendment, our special guest will share her experience in the Miss Arizona pageant competition and her work in advocacy on prison reform. Stay tuned. Patriotism, faith, national unity, education, fiscal responsibility, civility, the values that define America. Fascinating stories and talks from America-loving patriots dedicated to preserving freedom, opportunity, and justice. Welcome to the Friends and Fellow Citizens Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Friends and Fellow Citizens. I'm your host, Sherman Tylowski. Thank you so much for joining us today in a, an exclusive episode commemorating 100 years since the passage of the 19th Amendment of the United States Constitution. This marks 100 years since uh, women across the United States were allowed to vote for the very first time across all, 50, uh, all, across all 48 states at the time, now across all 50 states. And I'm very, very pleased to welcome a special guest coming onto this show, uh, Letitia Hua. Letitia obtained a law degree from the University of Edinburgh in the United Kingdom and an LLM from the Georgetown University Law Center. She's currently a JD candidate at Arizona State University College of Law. She's licensed in New York, and she was Miss Maricopa County in 2019. As Miss Maricopa County 2019, she used her platform to advocate for criminal justice reform in Arizona. She chaired a subcommittee at the legislature specifically focusing women's issues in prison. Leticia also works at a criminal defense firm as a, and is assisting on juvenile life cases. I am so glad to have her on the show. Leticia, thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Well, let's get right into it. As part of the Miss America organization, you competed in Miss Arizona. Tell us about your experience there and what you got from the pageant competition. Uh, sure. It was an incredible experience, and it feels like it was so long ago, um, but that, you know, that I was in an evening gown on stage. Um, I think so many people, when we say pageantry, people still think about women um, lined up in a row and where people pick the pr prettiest one. But pageantry has evolved um, over the years. And when I started competing, um, I totally thought it was of something that was very sexist and outdated. But actually through competing, I really found my voice in advocacy. And, and I recognized that it was something that was so much more than just looks and pretty dresses. Um, but my year was really amazing. I um, got to meet so many people across the state of Arizona and to advocate for issues that are really important to me. Um, I had a committee uh, who that ran my life and um, they are still some of my closest friends today and they're like my, my family. Um, so the friendships I've made throughout that year, I will keep with me probably for the rest of my life. Um, and also the the contacts and the experience, it was overall just really incredible and very unique. 
Wow. Well, I, I've, I'm really pleased about that because, um, you know, this experience, you know, to be able to showcase uh, America's uh, uh, talent when it comes to really talented women, uh, I think it's just really incredible. And uh, I think Miss America has become a great platform for that. Now, there were some major changes uh, from what I've heard, uh, something called Miss America 2.0. I'm not very familiar with uh, what these changes were. Could you briefly explain to us what those changes are and what you think of Miss America 2.0? Sure. So uh, Miss America 2.0 essentially is saying we're no longer going to be focused on judging women by their appearance. And we're going to help uh, prepare great women for the world and to prepare the world for great women, which is now their new motto. So the competition is not about looks anymore. It's more about um, helping women to be relevant and empowered leaders in modern times. Um, it's a, a way to showcase talent and education. And they're also um, the largest scholarship provider for women in, in the United States. It's really heartening to see that nowadays there's so many ways for women across America to be able to express their talents and their expertise, not just to the U.S., but to the entire world, perhaps more opportunities than ever before in this day and age. And what better way to celebrate than commemorating 100 years since the passage of the historic 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution? You know, as I was reading about uh, the history of this uh, passage, I mean, this fight had, had been going on for such a long time. I mean, decades, decades of you know, peaceful demonstrations, but also incredible lobbying, incredible, incredible persistence, and uh, you really have to uh, give a huge uh, regard and uh, admiration for generations of American men and women uh, who did a lot and sacrificed a lot to fight for a cause that was greater than any of them individually, or even as a collective, maybe some even greater than just the United States itself. Now, there are a few uh, women's suffragists that uh, I think are really incredible women who are incredibly pione incredible pioneers of this movement. Of course, we know uh, some of them, like uh, Susan B. Anthony, who uh, notably tried to vote in uh, Rochester, New York, in the 1872 elections. You know, she wanted to vote. However, uh, she as she tried to vote. She was arrested, unfortunately, and uh, there there was so much media attention at the time about uh, her arrest, about uh, what she had tried to do, and uh, it was a really remarkable case when you look at what uh, Anthony was trying to say in terms of fighting for uh, the uh, right for women to vote. And of course, so many of these uh, movements, that, uh, these women's suffragist movements, really started. A um, long time ago, but I think that real big moment was the Seneca Falls Convention, which I'll get to uh, later on in this episode. But uh, it, the incredible journey that women like Susan B. Anthony took uh, to have to go through all that, all through all that litigation, all uh, through that those legal systems uh, to uh, be able to make her case is something that is very, very much revered, I think, in American history. Uh, she, Interestingly, she was pardoned by uh, President Trump officially in August 2020 to commemorate uh, this 100, 100 years since the passage of the 19th Amendment. I'm actually surprised that a, a U.S. president had not done so before then, um, being, because uh, even even after 100 years, I was still surprised that there had not been an official pardon for uh, what, uh, what Anthony had done. In fact, not just 100 years. In fact, you have to go all the way back to 
connected to the 1870s. So this was really, really long time coming. But uh, I'm really pleased that uh, as a symbolic gesture for this movement, President Trump has uh, has on- honored uh, women's suffrage with uh, this official pardon. Now, of course, there are other women who were involved, like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who helped start the Seneca Falls Convention, uh, as I mentioned, in 1848. Uh, Lucretia Mott, also another uh, a very popular figure, of a popular pro-women's suffrage uh, advocate, uh, advocated to give freed slaves the right to vote, actually, after the Civil War. So we had actually a combination of different civil rights movements, an abolitionist movement, for sure, but also women's uh, rights uh, movement. And it's very interesting to see those two parallels uh, as we kind of see throughout American history. And uh, one of the things I want to bring about today, um, uh, Tisha, I've never, I don't know if you've been to the U.S. Capitol Rotunda before, but there is a notable portrait monument there of depicting Anthony, uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Lucretia Mott in a, a beautiful sculpture. Uh, initially, it was in the crypt, but they moved it up uh, to the uh, Capitol Rotunda uh, in 1997. And what I love about this sculpture is that there's this kind of blank piece in the back, and uh, you might wonder, it kind of looks like they might have forgotten something, or it might have, maybe there's not enough room or something. Turns out there was enough room for like another bus, but people have said, and something that I believe as well, which is that it represents uh, so much more of what uh, we can do to fight for women's rights. And I think that that is really, really a powerful symbol, Uh, not just a powerful symbol then, but maybe even powerful symbol today. Uh, some others, uh, I mean, there's so many. Uh, Carrie Chapman Catt was the president of the National American Woman Suffrage Association, and she was also founder of the League of Women Voters, which is still active today. Now, given all these uh, really incredible women's suffrages, uh, Leticia, uh, what do you most admire about uh, these incredible women who really had to go through a lot, a lot of opposition uh, from uh, men, but even some women, which is really surprising? What do you make of these incredible American heroes? I really admire their courage. And I think that there is something about fighting for equality. And then there's something about fighting for equality as that first person, whether it's the first woman or the first um, woman of color, or even if we're not just talking about women's rights and voting, but let's say being the first woman in your family to attend law school, um, in my case. Um, but being the first, these things are take so much uh, courage. And I think when you start doing these things, it's almost like you have to learn the leadership skills along the way. Um, and when I'm doing these things in terms of political advocacy, I do look to women before me who have gone through um, all these trials and tribulations to get to where they are. Um, and while I do admire these women, of course, um, they're also so many women of color uh, who have also marched alongside them and who have advocated um, for minority communities who couldn't vote even after the 19th, 19th Amendment was passed. Um, from what I understand, for example, um, as someone who is Chinese American, um, that Chinese American women couldn't vote until the 1940s and then uh, Puerto Rican women couldn't vote until the 19. 30s. Um, but a lot of the laws, even though technically after the 19th Amendment, women could vote, um, there are so many restrictions in place and um, in terms of den- denial of citizenship um, or um, 
I guess, polls um, being close to uh, women who are non-white. Um, so I think it's also important to add that not all women could vote after the 19th Amendment. Um, and I would say that the 19th Amendment is also not just a the kind of the culmination of all this advocacy. It's almost like it's the start of, of this movement that pushed women towards political um, being included in the political process, I should say. I absolutely agree with that. And, it's, it's, and you're absolutely right. Um, you know, at the time, you know, given the uh, the uh, very, very difficult uh, circumstances when it comes to women of color, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. I, and I think this is yet another example, as you said, as you rightly said, about how it's not a culmination. And I really feel like, you know, throughout American history, we have these watershed moments that I think uh, uh, you know, people at the time maybe might have thought, you know, this this might be the biggest thing that we might, we might never ever get to see another watershed moment like this. When in fact, uh, I think what history I think has taught us is that it really is not just about the destination. It's not just about, you know, and just getting somewhere. It's also about the process. And it's also about the systems and the way you get there. And that's why I think in, throughout history, we also get to share stories about uh, uh, both men and women who uh, did so much to fight for uh, women's rights. And certainly, uh, as you pointed out, the 19th Amendment really was uh, a very critical moment. And that was that first break of that barrier, that barrier that had been there for so long. And, uh, and and I th- and I'm just very pleased, uh, you know, as personally as myself, you know, uh, seeing how much progress there has been, uh, especially since then, uh, it feels like you know I've I've not obviously not been around for a hundred years, but uh, you know you can imagine that maybe some people feel like wow we have we really have gone through quite a bit since 1920, allowing a lot more people to be part of our democratic p- process. So I know that earlier that we were talking about how um, how much you love history, and I so much I admire that so much. But uh, I remember when I was still in school that there's so many things I didn't learn, and one of the things I I felt like I skipped out on in terms of um, learning about U.S. history and the depth of knowledge I would like to have um, would be, I guess, some of the contributions that not only women but minority women uh, have made in historic movements um, like this one that we're talking about. And it wasn't until actually this week that I was preparing for this interview that I learned about a woman named Mabel Ping Hua Lee, um, who, uh, because of discriminatory immigration laws, she couldn't become a citizen of the United States back then. So she uh, played an important part in fighting for voting rights in the United States and, and also in China. Um, and I wish that in school, I would have learned these things. And also um, in the Seneca Convention that they really based um, some of their ideas on the experience of indigenous women who were holding leadership positions in their tribes. And I think that's so cool. So that's something that I really feel like I missed out on. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, Leticia, because that I think is just a classic example of a great story that might be glossed over in school. And it certainly was the case for me, and I'm sure a lot of people here listening can agree as well, which is that there are so many great stories, and yet I feel like they need to be told in school. Given the remarkable history of the women's suffrage movement, what do you think people can do to preserve their legacy and their significance in American history? 
So for me, one of the issues that I see would be um, increasing voter turnout um, as a way to really honor the works of these women before us. Um, so I know that voter turnout has been an issue um, in past elections, and I can speak to Arizona knowing that our primary elections or voter turnout usually is around 20 to 30 somewhat percent. Um, and I think that if we have more engagement, that we're able to vote on issues that are really critical to our communities and to our lives, that that's one big way that we could contribute as a community um, to honoring the legacies of these women and to preserving and um, really exercising our right to vote. Um, and I think part of that is reaching out to communities that traditionally haven't been included in politics. Um, and that includes a lot of the women of color um, and communities who probably feel like their government, uh, for whatever reason, doesn't represent their interests. So I think it's taking a proactive step to, to helping them become a part of the process. Very well said. I really agree with that because uh, we, we talk a lot about civics you know, in terms of education, all that. But the other aspect is action, of course, right? Um, and I think to give people these options and be able to tell them that when we say we the people in the Constitution, we really have to mean it, I think. Um, and I think part of that is really is to get uh, get women and to get more people involved in the democratic process because, uh, you know, as the saying goes, uh, if you don't vote, you don't count. You know, and that's that's one of the, the terms that I think about when it comes to civic education. Really well said. Uh, now uh, I want to kind of more move into the more specific aspect of your platform. Now, my understanding is that you know in the Miss America organization, every woman has a platform that they advocate for, and it's part of uh, the uh, program and the process. So, Leticia, I was very interested uh, when I read a little bit about uh, kind of your interest in prison reform. Uh, as we talked about uh, kind of before we started recording this podcast, I really think this is an underlying issue across state lines, across the entire country. It's just not sustainable when we are putting people in prisons, but we are not figuring out ways to integrate a number of these former prisoners back into society. Now, obviously, the most serious offenders are not going to have a chance. But what about the people who committed more minor offenses? I think that is the big question. So Leticia, Tell us a bit more about your work in prison reform and what you plan to do. Sure. So Arizona is kind of this unique case because um, in terms of rankings, we are the fourth or fifth highest um, incarcerated states. And that's not because we have more crime. It's because of certain policy decisions that, for example, criminalizes um, drug addiction or mental health issues. Um, or if you commit low-level property offenses, but you've done it multiple times, even though those offenses are not, you know, per se dangerous individually, because you have a history, you, you kind of have all these stacked sentences, and then you end up being in prison for a really long time. Um, so it's tackling some of these policies that are keeping people in prison um, for longer than the national average. And I have spent some time visiting women um, who are incarcerated. And uh, it's been the most transformational and inspiring experience of my life. Um, and I say that because I've never really 
interacted with inmates before um, my advocacy work. And I think people have this conception uh, growing up that, you know, if you're you're a bad person, you end up in jail or prison. And meeting these people directly made me realize that that's not necessarily true, that there are many people in prison who shouldn't be there. And then there are people who um, should be incarcerated for a long time, but there's just such a large percentage who, whose sentence should be reduced or they should, shouldn't have gone to prison in the first place, in my opinion. So I spent my year um, highlighting their voices to people who are normally not very in tune with criminal justice reform because, as you said, it's an issue that's been overlooked. And if you're not impacted by incarceration for you know, the average citizen is kind of like, oh, why, why do I need to pay attention to this issue? Um, well, in Arizona, it's costing over a billion dollars a year of taxpayers money. Um, we have a high recidivism rate, meaning that when people go to prison um, and they come out after serving a lengthy sentence, perhaps they end up going back in. So there's a high percentage of that. And then we have to ask ourselves, well, what are we you know, like the resources we're putting into prisons, is that, is that very effective? Is that the best use of our, our money and taxpayers' resources? Um, and mo- more importantly, how do we actually help make our community safer? Because just putting in people in prison for, let's say, 10 to 20 years, when they come out um, and they don't know much about society that's evolved and changed, does that really make our community safe? And my answer, of course, as you can imagine, is a loud and resounding no. Wow, I mean, you mentioned that incarceration rate. That is that is extremely high. I did not know about that. I don't know what the incarceration rate of California is, but I can tell you that you know it seems like every time we talk about prisons, we always talk about how it's overcrowded, and yet it seems like there's there's never an, enough of a conversation about what we're doing uh, in these in these prisons. So for lower level offenses, what do we do to encourage and integrate? many of these people back into society? Uh, So one of the challenges that I have heard from many is uh, trying to find housing. Um, And as you can imagine, if you come out of prison and you have nowhere to go and you end up homeless, um, some people just rather go back into prisons as depressing as it sounds. Um, But a lot of people also need mental health services, um, education, um, stable jobs. And one of the challenges as well is that because if they have a record, some companies and employers don't want to hire them. And um, it, the problem becomes, well, how do we incentivize certain employers to hire people who have um, a record? Um, and how do we get affordable housing. Uh, So there are a lot of the programming issues that have been discussed at the legislature and and on a federal level. Um, But from what I understand, uh, we need more research to show the the positive effects of those. And we have some, but because those programs, in my opinion, haven't been implemented as much as they ought to be, um, we we just need more research to show that. And we also need more research to to um, find out how incarceration impacts men and women differently, because if we are really going to address the root cause of crime, we need to figure out why, the dif- I guess, the distinct needs of men and women in prison. Um, and so from what I found is that women are often 
um, victims of trauma themselves, uh, which is kind of different from men's pathways into incarceration. Um, but the overall idea is by figuring out essentially why people go in and what resources they need coming out, then we're able to then move on to the next step, which is figuring out what programs we need. So when I was chairing a subcommittee at the legislature, one of the things I did was to send out a survey to women who are formerly incarcerated, and they're a very difficult population to reach um, because of the stigma associated with incarceration. But we surveyed them and asked them what um, what could be improved um, from their experience and what resources they had and didn't have coming out. Um, and a lot of them I found out are mothers who don't know how to get their children back. So, so there's all this family law and custody issues, and they don't necessarily have um, often the funding to hire an attorney and fight for those. So it's, uh, and then there's also, as I mentioned, the housing and job issues. But if we're able to tackle that, I think we're going to be on a really good path to at least taking that first step to making their lives better. But that means that that should be in our conversation um, at the legislature, both on the state and federal level. Well, I really appreciate that answer. And uh, I really think you're doing a lot of work to, and as we were kind of talk, touching earlier, getting more uh, women into this uh, democratic process, right, to get to uh, send out a survey to get people involved in this discussion, learning about uh, what uh, what people need, and uh, what, are, what are the actual uh, root causes, right, of the underlying problems uh, facing our system. And uh, I would be, uh, I would be certainly up for more research on that, because, you know, the more uh, really decent information we have, the better we're going to be uh, off in terms of green legislation, and getting this word out to the uh, general public. Um, I think one of the things also that popped in my head with the research is showing the cost effectiveness of actually investing in these programs, because one of the arguments I have heard from people is why why is it the government's responsibility to provide those programs in the beginning? Um, and why is it the government's responsibility to rehabilitate these people and not just punish? Um, and I think that having reflected on that a bit, it would actually save a lot more money um, to invest in those programs so that people don't go back into prison um, than to keep, I guess, packing up our prison system um, because it's costing taxpayers. I, I think the number was over $30,000 per inmate per year. So that is a crazy amount of, just that's a crazy figure. That's more that we spend on education, at least in Arizona. Um, so uh, the whole prison to school pipeline thing or the school to prison pipeline thing, it's such a real, it, it's, it was, I, I guess it's just, it was in my head as a, a, as a concept and doing this advocacy work made me realize just how real that was, if that makes sense. Well, I'm really glad you added that because uh, I, you know one of the the themes of this podcast is fiscal responsibility, right? I mean, you, you know, when you highlight when we highlight these issues, I really think that it's important to have these numbers as well to show that you know we are not exhausting resources uh, in the best way possible. Um, and and it, I think it's very irresponsible for uh, certain critics to say that well we have to continue with these uh, inefficient programs that uh, do not lead to a sustainable. Uh, sustainable state in terms of getting people uh, integrated back in and having a real, a really just justice system. And same thing with the entire country as well. When we talk about federal prisons, 
Now, speaking of federal prisons, now federal prisons, I believe only are, federal prison inmates are only about 10% of the population. So we're not talking about a huge amount. This mainly is a state thing, a state and local uh, issue here. But uh, uh, what do you make of the bipartisan First Step Act that was passed in 2018? And just a quick recap, I mean, there's a number of provisions there, but there are things like, you know, it lowers kind of like a third strike, you could say, uh, drug offenders, instead of facing life in prison, they face 25 years. Uh, there's a bit more leeway for uh, judges on sentencing drug offenders. There's also rehabilitation efforts uh, involved to try to get people off addiction and other uh, substances. Also, a new credit system for uh, good behavior. But of course, this only affects about 10% of the inmate population in the United States. Um, what do you make of the First Step Act and what do you think needs to be added or at least considered on a federal and state level? Uh, so that was a great recap. And what I was going to say is that um, the First Step Act really impacts such a small percentage um, of federal inmates. And most of the people that are, or in, in prisons that is really bloating our system as a country, um, they are in individual states and counties. Um, oh, I forgot to also mention that as a country, we incarcerate more people than several European countries combined. Um, we incarcerate more people, uh, I believe, than Russia, China, and Iran, um, and many others. And I think that's extremely interesting. Um, but yes, back to the First Step Act. Uh, I, I think that we, I do appreciate it, first of all. And we do need leadership at the federal level for uh, states to kind of catch up. And we do need strong leadership to say we need to improve um our prison conditions to stop inhumane practices such as eliminating the use of restraints of pregnant women um, and encouraging people in prisons to be closer to their families. So kind of humanizing that those aspects um, and also to address the very punitive sentencing laws. Um, but because these don't really affect the majority of the population, uh, we really need to work uh, on the state level to make those changes. And funnily enough, one of the legislators I worked with uh, tried to copy the First Step Act, but to um, make it applicable to the state. And it didn't get a hearing or passed, but I think it's good that people are at least making an effort to take what people have um, or advocates have worked on at the federal level to apply to states. So it's a long journey ahead. And I don't think that we will accomplish that in Arizona. Well, I think it's going to take a while. Um, but I think it's, it's inspiring to at least have the First Step Act um, lead us in the right direction. Well, I, I got to say, one of the things I, I really admire about you and about uh, many women I speak to, which is that uh, you, when it comes to you know something like a big issue like prison reform, you know, uh, the persistence really is uh, incredible value you have and uh, so many people have. And I, I am confident that even though it, it is a very tough journey, it is very tough to uh, get uh, so many states on board. We're talking about 50 states plus D.C. and five territories, for crying out loud. Uh, but I think uh, you know, this could be uh, this could be perhaps a 
a movement. And uh, one of the things that uh, I love to see really is, uh, you know, is leadership. And I really feel like, you know, talking to future leaders like you and uh, having you to share your experiences and share your work, I think is really inspiring. And uh, and, and uh, I, all I have to say is it's, uh, there's going to be light at the end of the tunnel for sure, you know, when it comes to uh, getting a lot of steps. I don't care how many steps we have to take, but this is really a necessary issue for, for absolutely. Oh, thank you so much. Um, I, and I think one thing I really would like to say about my personal experience and advocacy and back to being the first and the, you know, being a woman of color is um, I really didn't have a lot of contacts when I first started and I don't have, I'm not personally impacted by incarceration, but I had um, in law school overseas done a lot of work um, while volunteer work and pro bono work in helping inmates um, and their rights in, in different countries. And, but it's, it's kind of far removed as in I'm not personally impacted by it. So at, at first I was a bit intimidated in my advocacy work um, because most people doing that work have a family member or they themselves have been in prison before. So they can really speak uh, um, based on their experience. And I felt that it was, it's, it's kind of scary. Um, but I realized that you can make a lot of change just by showing up, just by caring about an issue. And that I think everyone has some sort of a story or a platform. And so for me, it, it was being Miss Maricopa County. Um, but at, at first people, especially at the legislature, I, I guessing probably didn't take me as seriously, um, until I, in the middle of the, my advocacy work and they realized that there was value in promoting this issue to people who weren't traditionally involved. Um, so um, I worked with a, a lobbying firm in DC um, and we did a lot of media appearances and magazine interviews. I did my first televised experience, uh, appearance, which was also super scary. So the whole advocacy journey has been um, challenging and it took me outside of my comfort zone. I second guessed myself for pretty much 80% of it. Um, so I can't imagine what the, those women that we, you know, the women we've mentioned fighting for equality and women's rights and being the first women to, to say that women ought to have the right to vote, which um, we probably feel is so just obvious now, but it's was probably very intimidating and scary back then. Um, and so my advice always to young women is to do something, even if you're second guessing yourself, even if you're scared, because like I said, you, Half the battle is really just showing up and being able to care um, about your community enough to fight for people who whose voices have not been sufficiently heard. Well, I could not have said that better, Letitia. I just got to say, it's uh, it's really remarkable. Um, you know, you mentioned those sacrifices, right? And um, I think throughout this podcast, uh, one theme I think has come along quite a bit, which is. Oftentimes, I think in life, we are at a crossroads where we have to choose between doing what is easy and doing what is right. And I think oftentimes, we we might like to think that uh, change comes very easily. Certainly, hindsight is a big reason why. But I'm really glad that uh, we have a number of role models, especially uh, given this topic today, talking about prison reform, talking about uh, the women's suffrage movement. It really is something that uh, cannot be replicated, but it cannot be replicated. However, I think the spirit, I think their philosophy and their persistence is going to live on, and I think it's going to be timeless. And now kind of tying in, um, you know, with 
with all of what we've said, you're talking about pr- prison reform. Of course, before we talked about women's suffrage, a little bit about the history. Uh, I will have a story to share at the end uh, uh, of this uh, this section here. But you know, we at the end of our episodes uh, here on Friends and Fellow Citizens, we uh, we remember the uh, six principles that I've outlined uh, very early in the podcast, uh, tying Washington's principles of civility, education, patriotism, faith fiscal responsibility, and national unity. Uh, and we've explored the dynamics of these principles in m- multiple different ways. I think they cross so many, they cross certainly cross party lines, they cross a lot of different backgrounds, but I really think that this you know, these values, I think, will really uh, help bring people together and to be able to bring together and to solve these issues. So I guess you know, if we were to pick, uh, uh, pick one of these, one or more of these uh, values, what would you use to apply them to uh, your work, but also perhaps a little bit on uh, the women's suffrage movement and uh, the uh, pursuit of ensuring that women's rights, maybe not just in the United States, but across the world, are preserved for future generations? I think more than ever, um, we need more civility in, in politics. Um, and at first glance, the question might be, how does that have anything to do with women's rights, both here and internationally? Um, well, I, I think that because of how nasty, let's say, that politics have bec- has become um, in recent times that so many people don't want to engage with it anymore. And so many people are disheartened um, and... And they're discouraged from really participating in the democratic process. And there have been so many changes um, in our country in the way that we talk about politics and the way that we attack one another, another, and the way that um, every issue has become uh, so divisive. And that really pushes people away. And that inadvertently would push women away. um, And that... And we really need the opposite. We need a more inclusive um, conversation around politics. Um, we need to be more inviting. Um, and it might be kind of idealistic to say that we need to go back to just being kind. But I think that's what we need to get young people involved, to get um, to get more people to stay in the conversation. Um, I think a lot of advocacy work that I admire, by the way, um, have come about because of of anger and resentment. And those are very justified. Um, but for people to really stay in the conversation politically long term and to run for office and to be included in the democratic process, I think we need to make politics more accessible and more civil. So I think civility is something that, especially in the upcoming election, that we we need. And um, regardless of um, people's backgrounds and ethnicities and faith um, and viewpoints, I think it's something that we've kind of lost in the process these few years. I don't know how you feel about that. I, I totally agree, Leticia. I, I think civility has been probably one of my top principles to uh, talk about throughout this podcast. Because, you know, as someone, person myself, who's worked with people on both sides of the aisle, I can tell you that there's a number of people who really want to get things done, and oftentimes it's they're pursuing the same kinds of things. It's just maybe someone wants to take Route A, someone wants to take Route B, uh, but that not, does not necessarily mean that uh, Route A or Route B means that those people are evil, right? <laughs> I mean, the, it's just silly to suggest 
that. Um, and, and I really appreciate those words because it really is very divisive nowadays. And, you know, that's why, and I guess, uh, as I, as I've joked to my, uh, uh, my friends and family, as a, if, if politics was all solved and everyone was getting along, I would not have to do this podcast, obviously. <laughs> but uh, but here I am. Here I am every week on Mondays. And uh, I, I wanted to uh, do a couple things here. First of all, it's a tradition on friends and fellow citizens to ask people of their favorite founding father, obviously because of Washington's reference. But because this is a special episode, uh, I would like to ask not only who your favorite founding father is, but a favorite woman whom you admire from – uh, a time, of course, that uh, where you know Seneca Falls had, didn't even happen. All that your favorite woman from the early years of the United States, maybe the late 18th century or early 19th century. So I do have one, um, and I'm kind of proud of myself for ha- for having one and having stuck by. I want to say stuck by her for so long, but I really like Dorothea Dix, and she was an educator um, and a social reformer who advocated for people who are intellectually disabled um, in the, um, I would say she was born in the 1800s. Um, so like 19th century. Um, but I think at that time, mental health was so misunderstood and it's, I mean, it still is today, but she went into prisons looking at horrific conditions and spent 40 years of her life lobbying legislators um, on a federal level to establish mental uh, mental health or state hospitals for people who are intellectually disabled. And I think seeing her work really inspired me to also be that person who goes into um, prisons in, in Arizona and to speak up about the horrific human rights violations that occur. So She's one of my favorite. Um, I learned about her in AP U.S. history. Um, so since I was a teenager until now, I I just I have always been very inspired by her. And I think um, back to your first question about what I admire about um, these women, it just it comes down to courage because it's something that I know I I lacked when I first started advocacy, and it's something that I've really found along the way. And I couldn't have done it without um, women who have been there. Well, that's great, and and uh, you know, I think uh, Dorothea Dix, uh, I think, is uh, is certainly someone I've I read a little bit about in school. I really do think that uh, I think she she could have had a, could have had a bigger profile in my history classes for sure, uh, because and I think this is a very common theme as we've kind of discussed. You know, with with all these women, so prominent women, I really feel like there should be more understanding, more understanding of this this continual fight uh, for uh, what is right and what is good for the country. Uh, did you have a, a favorite founding father? I don't know if I have a favorite. Um, I really do admire George Washington. Um, and I feel like in a way, if we didn't have political parties, as he probably suggested, that maybe things would have been more on the civil side. Um, but I also really like Benjamin Franklin because he is, well, I mean, aside from all the accomplishments, right? Like, I think he's a very quirky person who is this really well-rounded Renaissance man and being an author and an inventor and a scientist and a diplomat um, and someone who was internationally engaged. I think that's something that is really interesting. And I did read his uh, biography, which was uh, a, super long, but very fascinating. So he's one of the, my favorite people to to learn about. Um, I also really, um, I, and you know, none of the founding fathers are, are perfect humans, but um, I really do 
um, admire John Adams uh, being a very distinguished lawyer. Um, and obviously, you know, all these men who contributed to, to writing the Declaration of Independence. Um, and then he, you know, negotiating the Treaty of Paris. And it's just, I think he and I would say John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, um, and George Washington. But I don't know if, do I have to pick one or? <laughs> Oh, that's okay. It could be. It could be. It's a three-way race, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> so um, maybe, well, maybe one of them will prevail uh, uh, later on. Maybe Letitia will declare a winner uh, at some point. But uh, it, that is totally all right. I think it's. I think it's really great. I think it's really great. You incorporate those three. Um, and I and I will say one one thing I like about uh, Abigail a- Abigail Adams, wife of John Adams, yes. which is that uh, she told uh, she famously told him, uh, "Remember the ladies uh, right. when, <laughs> way back." And uh, I got to. I think I think every every single uh, woman should remind uh, every uh, wife uh, should remind their husbands remember the ladies because uh, that is that is really something I I just love that little phrase that uh, that little sentence that she told him um, and and for and and of course much later on you know people I think uh, even to this day uh, I think are doing what they can to remember uh, the countless women who have uh, supported this country and so really great answer Leticia I guess I'm gonna wrap up with this story that I find find so fascinating. This is a story that I just recently learned about. So um, I I am not a perfect uh, American history uh, uh, nerd, but uh, I, I I wish I was one. Uh, but then again, uh, can't ask for can't get any everything that you want. But uh, so be it. Uh, but one of the things I love to read about was and I mentioned about how the women's suffrage movement really. Of course, it was mainly women, but there were also a number of men that were involved, which I thought, thought was very interesting. Not obviously, there was a lot of opposition, of course, for the anti-suffrage movement, mainly mainly from men, um, and there were some really strange justifications for anti-suffrage. Uh, I mean, there's like there's some, just some weird. Weird so-called science uh, science experiments and reports and all that came from a certain male scientist that made no sense whatsoever. I'm not even going to get into that because it's just crazy stuff. So, um, but uh, one story I love is you know with the uh, with the 1910s, you know there was a lot of pressure on President Woodrow Wilson at the time. Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson was elected president in 1912 uh, and served from 1913 up until 1921. Um, and of course, you know, with the World War One, that was really the big issue, right? That was the big foreign policy issue. But uh, initially, he he didn't really want to move on the women's rights issue. Uh, but it was really because of the persistence of a number of of women organizations uh, and uh, advocacy groups uh, who simply picketed outside uh, the White House grounds, uh, demanding for uh, and called to a Nineteenth Amendment to ensure that the women in the United States could have a voice. And it wasn't until uh, a great pressure on congressional representatives that you were able to get a lot more uh, pro-suffrage members of Congress on board uh, to debate a constitutional amendment. And because of this political pressure, uh, Wilson eventually uh, put out this this amendment and helped uh, put it out into debate in Congress in Washington. However, you know, and with an amendment, right, uh, you need three quarters of the state legislatures as part of the amendment process. And uh, it went through all these states uh, in the late 1910s and into 1920. 35 out of the 48 states had ratified the 19th Amendment, but you need 36. And the uh, the, uh, the women's suffrage advocates 
had to turn to another state to debate this amendment and to adopt it so that it could be the 36th state and move forward with the 19th Amendment. Tennessee took on this issue, and this state, believe it or not, was completely divided on women's suffrage. It was about half and half in the state and across the state legislature. It was really, it's really astounding what the how close the numbers are. And it passed this t- the Tennessee Senate and then went into the Tennessee House. In the Tennessee House, we were in completely divided, 48 pro-suffrage, women's pro-women suffrage, 48 anti-women suffrage, exactly tied. And there were all these bitter debates and fights and all that from both sides. And there was this one man, a young man who was only about 25 at the time. And he, uh, he was a legislator from McMinn County, Tennessee. And he was initially uh, anti-suffrage. Uh, he actually had wore a red rose and all that to uh, symbolize the anti-women suffrage movement at the time. And it was he watched uh, with you know this debate and all that. And on the day of the vote, when the uh, the House Speaker, the Tennessee House Speaker, announced that they were going to uh, try to resolve this once and for all, a young man named Harry T. Byrne received a short letter from his mother. And this in this short letter, she urges him to vote yes, even though she supposedly had no idea how he was going to vote. And it was, a, it was a very short letter, but it, re- it really resonated so much with Harry. And he read it over multiple times. And he thought to himself, boy, look at the, the situation. You know, I'm part, technically part of the anti-suffrage movement here. I've also got a lot of constituents who are against women's suffrage. And he had a very, very difficult question to, to ask. Should I vote for this amendment? And then the speaker puts this bill on the uh, on the table, and after uh, multiple forty eight to forty eight deadlocks, there's this one critical vote, and voting whether or not to adopt the Nineteenth Amendment to the United States Constitution, and with a shy, timid voice but powerful message, Representative Byrne voted aye, and the Nineteenth Amendment was passed in the Tennessee House 49 to 47. Just a shy guy from a small part of Tennessee made that critical vote that swung the Tennessee House to the, the, the right side of the 19th Amendment, and that is how the 19th Amendment was passed. And you know, after this moment, people were shocked. People just could not believe that he was going to vote that way because everyone thought that he was going to be voting alongside just like everybody else on his side. And uh, there were anti-suffragists that shouted bad names at him. There were even newspapers that started accusations that he was being bribed by the Tennessee governor's personal assistant uh, or some kind of Jewish immigrant. Fake news, uh, isn't it, right? Uh, it really, it's really astounding, the, the kind of trash that was uh, being thrown upon him. But this man, I think, really uh, responded uh, very well. He wrote in the House Journal to explain his decision. And I want to close our, uh, our first segment today uh, with this quote here. It says, quote, from Mr. Byrne, I desire to resent in the name of honesty and justice the veiled intimidation and accusation regarding my vote on the suffrage amendment as indicated in certain statements. 
and it is my sincere belief that those responsible for their existence know that there is not a scintilla of truth in them. I want to state that I changed my vote in favor of ratification first, because I believe in full suffrage as a right. Second, I believe we had a moral and legal right to ratify. Third, I knew that a mother's advice is always safest for a boy to follow, and my mother wanted me to vote for ratification. Fourth, I appreciated the fact that an opportunity such as seldom comes to a mortal man to free 17 million women from political slavery was mine. Fifth, I desired that my party in both state and nation might say that it was a Republican from the East Mountains of Tennessee, the purest Anglo-Saxon section in the world, who made national woman suffrage possible at this date, not for personal glory, but for the glory of his party, end quote. I think there's so much in that quote, you know, thinking about his priorities. He was facing re-election very soon after this, but he decided to take that difficult leap forwards to vote for what he believed was right, not what he believed was easy. And I really felt that this was a really important piece to include in our episode today. And uh, I think uh, Mr. Byrne probably should uh, should get maybe a, a commemorative statue or something, you know, to, to think about, at least to honor him, at least to honor him and his accomplishments. And uh, I just wanted to share that, Letitia. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if you've heard that story before, but uh, I think it's just a really touching moment there, and it just goes to show how close it really was uh, back in 1920. But thank goodness for uh, people uh, like him, and of course the countless women uh, and the countless men who helped make this possible. And as our episode comes to a close, Letitia, would you like to share any closing remarks to us? Uh, Thank you so much for sharing that story. Um, I think um, that one last thing I would want to say um, is that, uh, so I'm on the board of um, the Arizona AAPI Democratic Caucus. Um, And when we're talking about civility, I know that it's such a difficult time. um, And I know that, especially with the elections coming up, um, we will probably get so many different types of mail- mailers and so see so many different types of um, commercials that are demonizing one another. And if there's something that we can all do individually to make our democracy better um, would be to practice that civility. Um, it would be reaching across the aisle, regardless um, of whether you're a Democrat, independent or Republican. Um, but it's being willing to be empathetic um, and hear and listen listen to one another. I think this is this would be a great start to revitalizing um, our democracy and to make our country better. Very well put, Letitia. I just cannot agree with you more. This is incredible. And what you're doing and what so many people are doing right now to become leaders and to bring this country forward, to hold on to those principles that we've talked about, I think it's amazing. And I know that Letitia, you're going to go places because I can really sense that you've developed all these skills, you've developed the character, you've developed that ambition, and I think there's no doubt that you're going to be incredibly successful in your life. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for being on this platform and for being on this podcast. Make sure you follow Letitia on Instagram at Letitia Hua, L-A-E. T-I-T-I-A-H-U-A. 
I'll have that link in the show notes below. You can check that out. And thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Make sure that you subscribe and share this episode and podcast with your friends and family. Stay tuned for part two next week on October 19th, 2020. Remember, every Monday at 6 a.m. Eastern, you can listen to another episode of Friends and Fellow Citizens. Please take care, have a great rest of your day and rest of your week, and I'll see you next time at the next episode. Take care and so long.